0: Amen. The Lord is good. He's a way maker. He can do what you can't do. Some of you say, I I just can't follow Christ. Well, you can't on your own. Some of you say, "I, I can't witness for Christ. I can't make disciples. I can't, and we can fill in the blank. But God's got a purpose for each one of us. He's working in our lives to make us fruitful, to make us productive, to make us bring honor to his name. He's a way maker. One of my favorite things to do being your pastor is the ministry of the word. I I love studying through the week. Thank you for allowing me that privilege to study through the week and then to actually bring the word of God to the table to feed the flock. And so this morning, I'm gonna ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter five. We're gonna finish out this 10-part series in 1 John this morning. And so we're gonna begin reading in verse 13, We're going to stay with our theme, what 1 John is. You may know you have eternal life. So stand with me as we read this morning. We'll begin in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that, all wrong, wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we're from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. You may be seated. Oftentimes, we have people that are with us on a special morning, and we ask them to pray for us. And this morning, I'm going to go young, my grandson, Eli. We're going to open up the Word of God, Eli. Would you pray that we'll hear, listen, and obey this morning? Yes, sir. God, um, thank you for this morning. Uh, we love you so much. You are um Our way maker, miracle worker, you sent your son Jesus down on the cross, and we love you for doing that, and we love you for making us. You are the Lord and our Savior. You are the one who is just amazing, Lord. You're indescribable, Lord. We love you so much. Amen. Amen. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. When we die, there are only two places of existence in eternity. I know this is not new news. Some think it's so old that it really can't even be true. Many would cast doubt. I can almost hear the enemy saying, can't you? Did God really say there's a heaven and there's a hell? He's pretty clever and deceptive. And there are many in our world that do not believe there's a heaven and many more that do not believe that there's a hell. Let me give you a couple of summary statements about what the Bible says about these two places. At least in my words, this, this place called hell is used in some form or the other 167 times in the Bible. Now, if you say there's no place like this. If you say, how can you believe there is a place like this? And then you say you believe the Bible. I mean, it it really can't measure up. It can't add up. 167 times in some form or the other, hell is talked about. I would describe it as an existence created for the devil and his angels. That is, those who who tried to take the glory of God and were cast out of heaven, an existence created for the devil and his angels as a place of eternal fire and eternal punishment. Those who are not followers of Christ receive justice at the end of their lives and are condemned to hell. When you really understand God's holiness, hell makes a lot of sense. Now Yes, it's not an easy place for us to talk about. It's not a fun place for us to talk about. It's not a place that that we gloat about or gloat over. It's a place that we grieve about because many we know, many we live around, many we worship with will spend an eternity in this place that we've just described called hell. There is a different place called heaven. I would describe it as an existence with God forever forever where we can enjoy him and his glory uninhibited, and with all of those who've been adopted into his family. And when you understand the glory of God, heaven makes sense. For those who don't enjoy God and have never experienced him, heaven may not make sense, but for those who've experienced it, those who've begun to see it and taste it, Heaven makes all the sense in the world. Now, let me ask you another question this morning. Should someone become a follower of Christ based on these two facts of heaven and hell? I, I would indicate, yes, they, they should. But there's so much more than just a good place called heaven and a bad place called hell. The enjoyment of God is, is not like some gaming system. You know, our our students and our kids, they love the gaming systems, the latest ones. And and if if not careful, they could spend 24-7 playing that gaming system. But eventually it gets old. It may wear out or a new one comes out and it, it gets old. But God is not like that. God is inexhaustible in his glory. We could spend not only a lifetime, we could spend an eternity investigating who God is and enjoying his perfections. And that's what heaven is about. You think about your most close moment you've ever experienced on earth to God as a follower of Christ. And you multiply that out in his very literal presence and then you say that's what it's going to be like for an eternity. You think, man, I want to live there. I want to be there. I I want to give myself for that to experience God and His infinitude. It's great to know you're going to heaven, but it's even better to know what makes heaven great, and that's God Himself. And that's why we want to go there, to spend eternity with Him and to know Him better, to glorify Him. Now, John is writing about this. You've heard me say this, wouldn't it be neat if there was a book in the Bible that just talked about how you could know for sure you're going to heaven when you die? Well, we found it, right? 1 John, this is it. It tells us. And, and John is summarizing as he gets to the end of the book about why he's even written this to begin with. And I'm gonna ask you to take what we've tried to consider our focal passage, our, our church-wide memory text, and say it with me. So you, most of you, if you're, if you're not new, Uh, You know this. If you're new, uh, I'm, I'm the one who does the pastor part. You're the one who does the congregation part. I don't think that's too complicated. So, and this is the testimony. Whoever has the Son has life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. As your pastor, I don't want anybody under my watch to not have assurance of salvation. It's a pretty miserable existence to live life thinking, well, if I died tonight, where would I go? And not have an answer, not no. To live in the kind of fear of an eternity separated from God or in a, in a place that was created for the devil and his angels called hell, it's... It's fearful, it's miserable to live in that place. At the same time, I don't want anybody under my watch to have a false sense of security that they're going to heaven if they're not. And so 1 John helps us with this. And the first thing I want you to see as we consider our text this morning is your relationship with God when you know you have eternal life. What 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 is it about your relationship with God when you know you have eternal life? Well, First, you believe and you know. Again, in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. You've placed your trust in what God has done for you. You've begun to understand what Jesus has done in lefting the, leaving the glory of heaven, taking on human flesh in the incarnation, living a sinless life. And dying on the cross, being raised from the dead, and ascending back into heaven. You're understanding what it means for him to be the son of God. And you place your faith in him and not in yourself. It's easy to think, you know, if I could just do enough good things, I think God may let me in. If I could just let my good outweigh my bad. If I could just make up maybe for some of the bad that I've done. And and you'll never get there. It's it's impossible. Because we're all sinners and we all come short of the glory of God. We all deserve punishment. We all deserve the wages of sin, which is death, and an eternity away from God. That's what we deserve. You believe and you know when you place your faith in the right person, you, you not only in his perfections, but in his propitiation. It's been a good first John word for us, where Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. What we deserved in eternity. In the place called hell, because of our sin, Jesus took all of that punishment on him on the cross. He was the divine substitution. He satisfied the wrath of God by his own death. You believe and you know. But another thing that we could conclude from verse 13 is you read and you know. How do we know this is true? God chose to make himself known through the written word. There is a general revelation that we can look in creation and it speaks to us about the existence of God. But there's also this special revelation that God inspired people to write down these words, the exact words of his choosing. And so John is able to say, I write these things to you. It's written down. You read and you know, and the more we read the Word of God, the more our faith grows. The more we read the Word of God, the more we grow closer to God. Reading the Word is spending time with God because He's made Himself, His thoughts, known to us through the written Word of God. But then about this relationship, you ask and you know. It's like a child. I I, I loved when I sat down, one of my grandchildren came over and sat on my lap. He knows me. If there would have been just any old speaker that would have come out and sat down there, I don't think he would have gone over and sat in his lap He knows me, and he knows I'm going to pick him up and hold him, and I'm going to hug him, and I'm going to be grateful that he's there. And so our Father in heaven, he's like that. He welcomes us. He wants us to be in his presence. He wants us to pray, and he wants us to ask. And he's even told us in his word what to pray about. We know what the will of God is because we have the mind of God here in the word of God. You see, you don't just ask for anything and expect it to happen. You ask according to the will of God. We take all of the prayer passages together for a good biblical theology. And in this particular case, John makes it clear, this is the confidence we have toward him, our Father in heaven. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we ask of him. Now, there are things that we might not know if it's the will of God or not. And we might even pray that, God, I don't know what your will is in this. As best I can tell, it looks like this, or because you've said this in your word, I do know, and I'm asking for this, God. But however God responds, we know that it's going to be good. Sometimes he does say yes. Sometimes he says no because he knows it's not good for us. Like a good parent will say no to a child at times. And sometimes he just says wait. I'm not ready. You're not ready. That's a better way to say it. You're not ready. But God answers us. He, He hears us. He's our Father. Do you really know him? Well, I think prayer, your prayer life is a good barometer of that. And so your relationship with God, when you know, it's in some ways what we would call the doctrinal test that we've been looking at Throughout this series, these three tests keep popping back up as we've worked our way through John, not in a linear outline, but more of a circular outline, we find this doctrinal test, do you believe the truth? And if you don't believe the truth, you can't be saved. You've got to know the truth to be saved. But then there's also this social test, and that's the second thing that I want you to see, your relationship with others when you know you have eternal life. Notice in verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. In the social test, do you love people well? Do you you love them enough to see them? As As a family of believers, part of our relationship and community is that we see each other not just on a Sunday morning looking at a distance but we actually see each other and to see people I think means I've got to get to know them I need to be learning their name whether they're young whether they're old I'm spending time with them. And so part of that is a worship service that we gather together like this. What a wonderful thing that that we can all be here together, worshiping together and fellowshipping together before and after the service. But then we also have our life journey group. Some of you have already been to life journey group at 830. Others will go at 11 o'clock or close to it. That's a joke. We're going to try to do that. But our life journey groups, you get to see each other a little bit more intimately in those settings where we're talking and we're discussing the Word of God. We hear it preached in our service and then we get to talk about it, discuss it, hash it out together in our in our life journey groups and in our D groups. And then some of you have taken that extra step of one-on-one discipleship where you have a, an older man or an older woman who's spending time with you, investing in your life and pouring into your life. These are the kinds of ways that, that we see each other. We, we know what's going on in each other's lives. And when something's not right, we've seen them long enough that we can go and say, is everything okay so you know I'm praying for you. That's part of what this seeing each other is, that we're community, we're family, so much so that we know each other. Again, in verse 16, if anyone sees his brother, you've got to spend time, you've got to be with them to know what's going on in our brothers' and sisters' lives. And when they commit a sin not leading to death, that means they stumble. There's a sin that does lead to death in this text, and that's someone who is unwilling to repent. Someone who's unwilling to repent. They've, they've sinned. And I do believe there's a time when God takes people who know him on to heaven. Because God disciplines all of those who are his. And sometimes his discipline does go that far. First Corinthians chapter 11, we take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. For this reason, some among you are sick, some have even died. You see, there is a sin unto death when, when it's unrepentant and somehow we think we're going to be okay and God's just going to keep overlooking that sin in our lives. You see, if you're in his family, you just can't keep sinning. You, you're going to sin because you still have you still live in the flesh. But when you sin, the light shines so brightly and the Holy Spirit convicts you so strongly that you have to repent. And for those who are in the family of God and they refuse to repent, there is a sin that leads to death. You say, well, how do we know when that is? We may not know. Only God knows that. So he's not really commanding them not to pray for them, but he is saying to us, pray for those you see sin, those who are coming up short. And And again, there's not much reason to pray for those who have sinned unto death, but because we don't know, I don't think the, it's actually a command. They're saying, "Don't ever pray for them." So I, I would say, keep praying. Sometimes we say, "Well, shouldn't we stop praying for this nation?" I mean, hasn't it drifted too far away that God's going to judge us? And I'll say, No, I'm not ever going to give up praying. God send revival. God send an awakening. Raise up godly men and women who will not only preach the gospel in the world and all their circles. But in all phases of life, raise up people who will serve him in all kinds of context. But in this particular case, your relationship with others is evident by the way that you get to know people. And that you get not only to see them, but to become familiar with their lives. So much so that we pray for them. I I told you up front, one of my great joys in being your pastor is the ministry of the word. I get to study I get to share the Word of God. But also, I love praying for you as well as a church body. That's part of what we do, but but it's not just a pastoral responsibility. We should all be praying for one another. And so God's put you in a life journey group. God's put you in some relationships. God's put you in a place where you're sitting around other people. And it, what what would it be like if on a given Sunday morning, somebody that you normally sit near you just wrote their name down on a note card and you began to pray for those people that you sit near in the worship service. What is What would it be like on maybe one of those days of the week? You took everybody in your life journey group or your D group and you put them on one note card and you just began to pray for them. What would it be like maybe another note card is just all of your neighbors that are unchurched that you began to pray for them? You, you see there's power in prayer we're already told that God wants us to come to Him. We have confidence in asking Him of things in verse 14. And then we're told even further that we should be so much of a family that we pray for each other. I can tell you not many days go by that I don't pray for each one of my kids and my grandkids. They're in my family. It's like there's a level of, of responsibility I have to pray for them. But you know that extends out more than just biologically. That's a spiritual, we're a spiritual family. Are we praying for one another? Are we seeing each other, getting connected in relationship enough with each other to know each other well enough to actually pray for them, especially when they're struggling in their lives? And then let me give you one more thing here. Your relationship with sin when you know that you have eternal life. Look on in verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. They may slip up from time to time, maybe even from day to day, but they don't stay there. When they sin, they repent doesn't just keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Not only do we have a community around us who are praying for us and pulling for us and helping us, but Jesus himself is helping us by interceding for us. The one who came from heaven, first born of God, came to earth, Born of a virgin, took on human flesh, lived his life out. He knows exactly what we're going through. In all ways, he was tempted just as we are, and yet was without sin. We can go to him. He helps us. He protects us. And we even pray that as a part of the model prayer, don't we? Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We're asking for God's help, and the evil one does not touch him. The enemy for a child of God cannot do anything more than what God allows him to do in your life. God protects us. He helps us. He doesn't let us be led astray by the evil one. Whenever we start moving in a certain direction, when we're enticed by our own flesh, which that's the first sub-point there, you're helped by God from yourself, because that's where sin originates with us. We're drawn away. Now the devil may lay it out there, but it's not his fault. It's of our own uh, flesh that's drawn away. It's our responsibility to say no. And I always love that five second rule. I, I, I typically don't eat food even if it has only been on the floor for five seconds. I, that's not me. It has to be a certain situation for that to happen. But with temptation... First five seconds. I need to deal with it and put it down. Or it's going to consume me and take over. Because I'm drawn away. My flesh is what's in it. It's a part of me until I go to be with the Lord. It's a part of me. So God helps us from ourselves. You're helped by God from yourself. But you're also protected by God from the devil. Not only does he say that in verse 18, the evil one does not touch him, but we know that we're from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Isn't that a strong statement? Have you ever really thought about that? You sometimes bemoan like me the, the university system in our world. How that it's so away from God and anti-God it seems. We look at so much of the political structure. We look at so much of our world and it, it seems to be opposed to God. It's under the control of the enemy. The little G God that we talk about, he's in control of this whole world. God's God's permitted that for this time. It's a time of testing. Who's going to follow Christ or not? He's in control of this world. That's why John earlier said in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world. Or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It's always a danger as followers of Christ to love the world. God's clearly helping you out here in His Word. He's speaking to us to say, don't, don't fall into that trap. It's easy to get so focused on what you're accumulating on earth that you have no affection for God. It's easy to get caught up in sin in the world and have no affection for God. And John's is clearly laying it out here for us. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Might be a little time for an examination. Am I, am I living my life more under the power of the evil one than I, I want to admit this morning? Am I living according to the world or am I really living according to the word? You are protected by God from the devil. Imagine the lies and the deception that he just regularly sells and so many buy. Imagine the joy That you've been robbed from because you have given in to the enemy. Imagine the darkness that's been perpetrated against you and families and churches because of the evil one. He's not a lightweight to be taken lightly, he is an enemy who is to be fought vigorously. There is a way out. There is a way maker. I would say to you again, you can't do it yourself. You cannot do it yourself. The Holy Spirit has been given to you as a helper. He will come alongside of you and lead you as you're in the word of God. He will direct you. He will give you strength and help along the way. He's given you a, a community, a family of God that will encourage you, see you, know you, pray for you. But ultimately, it's Jesus who provides that way out. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were hopeless. We were helpless. Jesus came on a rescue mission to be the savior of the world. Those who place their faith in Christ have new life. They're in the light and they walk in the light. They've received his love and they walk in love They've received his truth, and there are people who believe the truth. You've probably heard that statement before. Do you promise to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, so help you, God? It really starts like this, if you want to know in a more biblical order of that. Do you promise to know the truth? And nothing but the truth, so help you God. You see, if you know the truth, then you can tell the truth, and then you can live the truth. But you've got to be determined, am I going to know the truth? Have I really searched the scriptures to know what God says about himself, and what God says about eternity, and how I can have a relationship with him? You say, Rodney, we've spent 10 weeks on a book just trying to make sure whether people are saved or not, is it really worth it? Here's a a book that teaches us about assurance of salvation. But notice what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Isn't that pretty interesting he would say it like that? Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Go through the doctrinal test. Go through the social test. Go through the moral test of obedience. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? If he's in you, shouldn't your life look different than in someone's life who he's not in? Unless, indeed, you fail To meet the test. If you're not sure about your relationship with God, don't keep living in that spot of uncertainty and doubt and fear. Know that you know. John said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. After our service, in our closing psalm, there's going to be a couple of pastors up here. If you'd like to come and talk to one, I will be in Guest Central. I'd love to talk to you. But not only for you who, maybe at some point, you you made a profession of faith, and may, maybe you know that you've just not been growing in your faith, and so that's why those doubts are there. Maybe it's a part of the discipline of God. You've not been walking with God, so the doubts are there because you know you've not been walking with Him. But there there may be... Even those who are here today who... who you'd say, I know I'm not a follower of Christ. I have not placed my faith in the truth. When I put my life up to this social test, I'm not growing in love. When I put my life up to this moral, I'm not growing in obedience. I know I'm not... If you, if you know that you're not saved, would you come and talk to one of us today? It's a matter of placing your faith in what Jesus has done for you. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? and rose from the dead? Are you willing to place your faith in him? Are you willing to confess him as Lord to say for the rest, from this day forward, I am committing my life to following Christ. I am confessing him as Lord. If so, today could be your day. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. It speaks so specifically, so clearly about this relationship with you. Would you draw people to yourself this morning? Those who, who Lord, you know are already in your family but are struggling because they're not walking with you, would you bring such strong conviction? Let your light shine so brightly that they would repent and turn their lives completely over to you. And Father, for those who don't know you, those who've never begun that relationship with you, Would you draw them to yourself even now? Would you show them your love? Would you show them that you have a better way for them? Work in these moments for your glory and to grow your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.